0: If you're new with us, it's lovely to see you. Uh, my name's Tim. Uh, I work as one of the ministry apprentices here uh, at St Mary's, uh, and I've got the privilege of taking us through our last uh, last talk in the Book of Acts uh, for the moment on Acts 18. That reading we had. Uh, there's an outline of the talk that you'll find uh, in your Bibles as you came in, so I encourage you to follow along with that. Uh, take notes uh, if that will help you to remember. As we begin, let's let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed uh, for your word given to us. We thank you that you do speak to us and make yourself known. We pray that your spirit would be at work, helping me to boldly proclaim the name of Jesus. We pray that your spirit, that same spirit, uh, who wrote these words, would be at work in our hearts that as we hear your voice, we might respond rightly. Help us to turn to Jesus, to put our trust in him and to keep boldly proclaiming his name until he returns. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever encountered misunderstandings of the gospel? I remember attending a a training day for, for Sunday school some years back in Australia. Uh, and the speaker was explaining to us that we needed to be very careful uh, in using abstract terms when talking to the children. A few years back, she'd been uh, explaining the gospel to some children and telling them that they needed to accept Jesus into their hearts. She soon realised that the children were looking around, thinking about how they were going to get Jesus into their hearts. And one child thought eating their Bible might be the way. (laughs) I guess they were feeding on God's word anyway. (laughs) But it's very common, isn't it, to encounter misunderstandings of the gospel. And not just from children either. I remember a particular Bible study for international students that I was running um, a couple of years ago. Uh, We were studying Romans 1 and, and someone in the group said, God hates our sin, but not the sinner. He's angry with the evil things that we do, but he's not angry with us. He loves us. As we studied, we, we realised that it was actually a misunderstanding. Um, they thought that a loving God could never be angry with anyone. There's also other times when the, the misunderstanding is just so great, you wonder if they're believing another gospel completely. The slogan for another church in Wollongong was, God's people doing good God's way. And the church's emphasis was on um, helping people in their physical and emotional uh, and psychological needs and promising them uh, that if they put their trust in Jesus, then they'd have a life freed from trouble and free from all those problems. But there was never any talk about sin or about judgment or about uh, the need to turn to Jesus as their Lord seemed like a, almost a completely different gospel altogether. I'm sure you could multiply the number of stories uh, here in Malaysia as well. So what do you do when you encounter misunderstandings of the gospel? Do you get up and, and publicly shame the person? Do you just try and overcome it by teaching the truth? Or do you just overlook it and pretend it didn't happen? In today's passage, uh, we encounter three misunderstandings of the gospel in Ephesus. But first, just a quick reminder where we're up to uh, in our series. Paul has just finished his his second missionary journey. Uh, His last stop uh, on the way back to Antioch was in the city of Ephesus. And the Jews at that time had asked him to stay longer and tell them about Jesus, uh, but he had refused. Um, Instead, he'd left his friends uh, Priscilla and Aquila, To help them. But before long, Paul sets out again from Antioch on his third missionary journey. On the way, he strengthens the churches in Galatia and Phrygia on his way back to Ephesus. But before Paul arrives, we zoom ahead and we encounter our first misunderstanding of the gospel as we meet a passionate and a bold man named. Apollos, who has just come to Ephesus. Please read with me from uh, Acts chapter 18. We'll read on from verse 24. Acts chapter 18, uh, starting from verse 24, page 1117. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Apollos is from Alexandria. Uh, the site of the, the great 400,000 volume library of Alexandria, one of the, the seven uh, wonders of the ancient world. Now some people debate whether Apollos is a Christian, but look again how he's described. Uh, verse 24, uh, he's got a sound knowledge of the Old Testament Scriptures. Uh, verse 25, he's been instructed in the way of the Lord, that is the Lord Jesus. He is he's fervent in spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in his life as he teaches the gospel. And to top it off, in verse 25, you see he's teaching about Jesus accurately. Now that's hardly a description of anyone but a Christian. Uh, Luke says he only lacks one thing, there in verse 25, that he only knew about the baptism of John. He's ignorant that what John foretold, that Jesus would baptise with the Holy Spirit, had already begun on the day of Pentecost. So it seems he's offering his converts the baptism of John instead of telling them that they can receive the Holy Spirit. It seems to be more like a a ritual sort of problem than than a doctrinal problem in his head. But you notice Luke is not negative to Apollos at all. Even though he doesn't know any, anything, it doesn't stop him from getting out there and, and using his gifts to serve Jesus. And so he's known, come to know the Lord and he just wants to get out there and tell everyone about him. You know what, I, I just love it when I see people who have just become Christians uh, wanting to straight away uh, tell their friends about Jesus. I remember a Chinese friend of mine named Fang Um, who became a Christian during my time in Australia. And after he became a Christian, almost every week he would bring a whole carload of people, non-Christians, from his college um, to church. I think he needed to invest in a bus sometimes. (laughs) Now Fang, just like Apollos, hadn't worked out everything. But they knew Jesus was Lord and that other people needed to believe in him. And that's a big challenge to the rest of us who have been Christians a long time. Have we got the same enthusiasm to share the gospel with others? Well, Nonetheless, there is a danger, of course, in being a gifted communicator but not having everything quite right. uh, Because there's a danger that you might propagate your misunderstandings to others. And so it's a great blessing of God that, that Paul's ministry uh, through Priscilla and Aquila uh, reaches Apollos. We read that in verse 26 again. Apollos began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Apollos is, is, is humble enough to accept correction, even though he is a learned Alexandrian, that doesn't stop him realising that he doesn't know it all. If only more of us were like him. Do you notice the way that the Priscilla and Aquila do it? They don't just label him as a heretic, they don't just try and embarrass him publicly, instead they take him aside quietly. Literally they take him into their home. And they explain the message more accurately to him. It's just as FF Bruce says in that quote on the screen, How much better to give such private help to a preacher whose ministry is defective than to correct or denounce him publicly? Sometimes public public correction is required, especially when the error is serious. But most of the time, when we see a, a fellow Christian, acting below par, the first step is normally to humbly and gently talk to them in private. In other words, to speak the truth in love. The end result of Aquila and Priscilla's uh, discreet and wise instruction you can see in verse 27 and 28. And when he, Apollos, wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. The Apollos is all the stronger, and Jesus is honoured. Friends, don't give up on someone if they don't get things right the first time. And don't be so silly as to expect perfection in yourself as well the first time. We're all growing together in our knowledge of Jesus and in our abilities to serve him. So look around and see the potential in people. Offer them a helping hand rather than an accusing glare. Apollos had the potential to be an influential teacher of the faith. And thanks to the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila to him, in the end, verse 27, he proved to be a great help to his brothers in proclaiming Jesus. Next we're introduced to another group of people who seem to know even less than Apollos. We read of them, Acts 19 verse, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptised? They said, Into John's baptism. Well, at least at first sight, they, they seem like disciples. Though disciples of whom is, is not mentioned here. Uh, but clearly something is amiss for Paul to ask this rather strange question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And what soon emerges is actually they, there aren't disciples at all, at least of Jesus. Not only have they not heard about the Holy Spirit, they, they haven't received it themselves. All they know is about John the Baptist, in a very similar way to Apollos. But that is about where the similarity ends. Apollos had the Spirit and he proclaimed Jesus as the Messiah, but these disciples, they know neither the Spirit nor Jesus. Maybe they are disciples of John, they're kind of stuck in one of those time warps like a sci-fi movie but they're certainly not Christians. So what do you do when you meet someone who is not a Christian? Well, you do exactly what Paul does. You you try to evangelise them. And you see in verse 4, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, They were baptised into the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. John the Baptist belongs to the the New Testament part of the Bible, uh, in terms of literary terms, but theologically he belongs to the Old Testament. He was the signpost not the destination, and he himself said that. And when John met Jesus, he recognised Jesus as the Messiah, the goal of the Old Testament for a Saviour. He was the fulfilment of the Old Testament, and he brought in a new covenant through his death on the cross. So there's absolutely no use for someone to remain an Old Testament believer, like these twelve. They needed to turn to Jesus. And when they do believe, they too receive the Holy Spirit. Just like the first disciples in Acts 2, just like the Samaritans in Acts 8, just like the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, when they receive the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak in tongues and to prophesy. They're caught up into Pentecost and they're swept from their time warp into the reality of the kingdom. Now, this quite unusual incident has been taken by Pentecostals to try to prove a two-stage sort of Christianity. According to those people, you become a Christian first, but then at some later stage, you should experience a post-conversion uh, experience, which they call baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, which is marked by speaking in tongues and prophesying and enables you to live a powerful and victorious Christian life. But I think we've demonstrated well enough that these disciples here were not Christians at all prior to Paul's preaching of them. So this passage in no way teaches such a a post-conversion blessing uh, with the Spirit. Furthermore, Paul and Peter elsewhere teach that without the Spirit you can't become a Christian. And conversely, everyone who becomes a Christian receives the Holy Spirit at their conversion. See in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3, where Paul says, No one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2 verse 38 and 39, Peter says, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Be sh- absolutely sure that there is no two-stage Christianity, with a second blessing of the Spirit. Avoid such people who teach that. Well then why is this strange, bizarre passage here? Well firstly it warns us that not everyone who looks like a disciple of Jesus is a disciple of Jesus. Just because someone has been baptised or someone goes to church or they tick the the Christian box in the census form, that does not mean that they have a living and a real faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And so when we meet such people, we need to do exactly what Paul does. We need to proclaim to them the Gospel in the hope that they will believe and they will be saved. I wonder if there's anyone in this room who is like that, only Christian in name or by appearance. It's very easy for us as humans to hide behind a mask but inside we have no real faith at all. If that is you, turn to Christ, he's the Lord, be genuine and believe. But secondly, this story shows that the true gospel is continuing to spread throughout the world. It's another milestone in the book of Acts, as yet another distinct group is brought into the Kingdom of God. But the spread of the gospel doesn't finish with these twelve in Ephesus. It's just a precursor that God is going to do a great work in Ephesus and draw many to himself. We read on in in verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God that when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Back in chapter 18 verse 20, the Jews had initially asked Paul to say and teach them the Gospel. Uh, and so finally Paul returns and he does just that. He does his normal thing, you notice? Boldly reasoning and persuading about the Kingdom of God. But sadly, after three months of prolonged daily reasoning, they still fail to respond Back in in Wollongong, I read the Bible with a a Chinese guy named Laurie, and he was quite enthusiastic to begin with. We, We studied the Bible for at least two hours a week, every week, for 18 months. But eventually, he gave up reading the Bible with me. I learnt over time that ignorance gives way to stubbornness, that questioning gives way to unbelief, and finally, it can end in rejection altogether. If you are here investigating Christianity, let me encourage you not to put off a, a response. Because the longer that you do it, the harder it is to finally make the decision. Put your trust in Jesus today. However, in the providence of God, their rejection serves only to, f- to promote the further spread of the Gospel. Paul is forced to, to move to the, the, the preaching hall of Tyrannus, which is probably the lecture hall of a famous philosopher back then. But the bottom line is, is Paul's remark, sorry, Luke's remarkable summary statement in verse 10 there, that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Before we go on, a little bit of background about Ephesus will help us. Ephesus is the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. And it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia. Not Asia today, but the Roman province of Asia. And it was like the Pasamalam the of, of Asia, the place where everyone would come to buy and sell all their things. And that is why the Gospel could spread from Ephesus to the, every corner, Uh, every corner of the province of Asia But Ephesus is also well known as the magic capital of the Roman Empire So as Paul continues his ministry in Ephesus it's inevitable that the gospel will come face to face with magic We have these supernatural power encounters uh, listed for us in verses 11 to 20 It begins uh, with Paul uh, in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Notice first that there in verse 11 that it's God who is doing these extraordinary miracles through Paul. Paul is not powerful just in and of himself. But Luke notes that these are extraordinary miracles. And extraordinary indeed. Even Paul's sweat-soaked handkerchiefs and aprons from his labour work can heal people and, and drive out demons. I mean, Paul is being, la- is being painted just like Jesus, who only needed people to touch his clothes, and they would be healed. But it's important here as we see these, these extraordinary miracles to remember back to verse 8. What is Paul giving himself to? It's the bold proclamation of the kingdom, not to miracle work. Nonetheless, these are a gracious affirmation of God, of his ministry. The next encounter shows that the source of the power is in Jesus himself. We read on in verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. I adjure you by by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Siva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognise, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house, naked and wounded. These Jews are from a priestly family, so they should have known better than this. We saw in our Old Old Testament reading that magic and divination were strictly prohibited in the Old Testament law. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10 There shall not be found among you anyone who practices, div- practices divination, or tells fortunes, or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination of the Lord. But apparently it's quite a trend among the Jews to dabble in magic, in Ephesus. They're using Jesus' name like a like a magic word or an incantation, something like that. But the problem is that, that these Jewish exorcists, they have neither relationship with, with Jesus nor with Paul, his apostle. And so rather than being successful in driving out the demons, they end up being beaten up and Running out naked, almost comically. My friends, the name of Jesus is not to be trifled with. Jesus is not a genie. Jesus is not a source of power for us to command or to invoke for our own purposes, whether good or otherwise. Jesus is not there to do everything we want Him to do. He's not there to give us good exam marks. He's not there to give us a successful career. He's not there to give us the perfect husband or wife. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. We are meant to honour and respect Him. We are meant to listen to His commands there's also an important point being made about Jesus and his relationship with magic. Now, I'm not talking about Harry Potter uh, so much as actual, real magic, you know, sorcery. Here, uh, following Jesus is being portrayed as an alternative uh, to the popular religious trend of the day, magic and mysteries, astrology and fate. And what categorize, what characterises magic or sorcery then and now uh, is that it's an attempt on various rituals or words of power, charms, knowledge of mysteries or other things to manipulate or to influence some deity, some supernatural power to do the will of the magician. But what characterises Christianity is reliance on God in Christ there's prayer and requests. There's not command and manipulation. Christianity is not another form of magic. And so Luke encourages us to reject magic and to trust in God's word. You can see that by uh, the reaction of the disciples in verse 17. This became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, Notice that it's now the believers who are repenting. They've been holding on to their old practices before they'd become a Christian. And that's probably not so different to many of us as well. I mean, which of us immediately gave up all of our old practices when we became a Christian? Often growth is quite gradual, isn't it? it takes place over a long period of time. It's hard to break old habits. I wonder if you're still holding on to old, evil practices uh, from the past before you became a Christian. Maybe you're still holding on to inappropriate habits with drinking or viewing pornography. Or maybe you're just still holding on to the the worldly desires of climbing to the top in your career. But we're meant to put our old life to death. It's meant to be executed, to be dead. And that's what the Ephesians do in the end. Despite the cost, 50,000 pieces of silver, they know that there is to be no compromise with Christ uh, and other religious, other religious rituals. It's still true today. Christians are to have nothing, absolutely nothing, to do with horoscopes, with wicker with fortune telling, with good luck charms, with seances, they should not believe in things like astrology and neither should they have anything to do with the demonic rituals and ceremonies associated with other religions. Christians should not be involved in offering uh, offerings to their ancestors, they should not burn joss sticks at their relatives funerals or paper money during Chinese New Year. They should not put food on shrines to Buddha or or to ward off evil spirits. See, it's not just harmless fun, it's dangerous. It's a dangerous form of compromise. Evil spirits are real and they are dangerous, have nothing to do with them. Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of personal transformation and redemption, so follow Him. But neither do we need to be afraid of evil spirits. Uh, what uh, it reminds me of um, when Marianne moved into her, her, new, her, new, her new office and she found that uh, in her room there was a bunch of palm crosses in there and people were telling her, be careful if you go in there, there might be evil spirits in there or something. But what is clear is that if Jesus and demons were going to face off in a WWE wrestling match, Jesus is going to win. In fact, Jesus has won. He demonstrated it in his life, driving out demons. He completed it in his death, as he defeated Satan on the cross. And he's been raised again as the Lord of all, including evil spirits. So give your soul allegiance to him, Jesus, and Jesus alone. Friends, we've, we've reached uh, another summit uh, in the book of Acts. and Luke wants us to make sure that we spend some time to have a look at the view at the top. See in verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Ephesus was the site of Paul's longest ministry in a single city. He stayed there for over three years preaching the gospel. And during that time, the word of the Lord reached every corner of the province of Asia. God's word and God's spirit were powerfully at work, drawing people to Christ. And the city was, was turned upside down as people left behind their old practices in magic and idols. And as they turned to serve the living and the true God. There is absolutely no doubt that this is the pinnacle of Paul's ministry uh, as a free man. So as we stand on the summit, let's like take a look at the view. And firstly, look out and see uh, that we will encounter misunderstandings of the Gospel. and Like Apollos, it may be completely unintentional, people may just have not had the opportunity to hear. So as we encounter such people, have compassion. We must not just publicly shame them, but lovingly share with them the word of God, that they too may have an accurate knowledge of the truth. If the error is serious enough, we do warn others, like the lie of the prosperity gospel here in Malaysia. But We must also be like Apollos and have the humility to admit that there will be times when we ourselves will misunderstand God's word. And in those times, we need uh, to have the humility to listen and to change. Our second landmark uh, is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. In every city uh, Paul has visited, we have seen the Gospel's power in changing lives and bringing people to Christ. And today we have seen the Gospel prevail over magic uh, in bringing people to Christ. We've seen it transform the lives of the disciples of John. And we've seen similar miraculous things happen in Corinth and in Athens and in Thessalonica where people turn from their old lives to turn back to Jesus. It's been all due to the gracious work of God by His Spirit. His Spirit that empowered people like Apollos to speak the word boldly. His Spirit that was at work in those who heard it, like the disciples of John, to bring them to believe it. The Gospel is the power of God for salvation, the power of God to liberate those in bondage to sin, the power of God to reconcile us to God and bring us forgiveness. The gospel is powerful news worth living for and worth dying for. So friends, as we leave this series in Acts for a moment, may we too share the passion of Apollos and Paul and Timothy and Silas. they worked that all the world might hear the Gospel. Friends, let all the world hear, let all the world hear that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jews, Buddhists, Indians, Chinese, whoever it may be, here at SMAC and ACA, we seek to glorify God in response to His grace by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Let's keep going. Let's, let's persevere together. Let's keep praying for the salvation of our friends and our colleagues and our family. Let's be bold in sharing the gospel. Let's continue to love those around us with the love of Jesus. It doesn't matter if we, we know it all. It doesn't matter if we have to suffer. What matters is that, that Jesus the Lord of heaven and earth is honoured and glorified. For in the end, that is what we were made for. That is exactly why we are here. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word your powerful word, which is the the power of God for salvation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the way that you were at work in Ephesus, uh, bringing the gospel to all the people uh, from every corner uh, of the province of Asia. We thank you for the bold proclamation of the gospel uh, by Paul and Apollos. And we thank you that The Gospel is is triumphs over all things, whether magic or evil spirits or whatever else. Heavenly Father, please help us as we leave this series in Acts uh, to have our eyes on Jesus. Help us to give our soul allegiance to him. Help us to trust him for our salvation alone and help us to be bold in proclaiming Christ. We pray indeed that all the world, might hear the news of salvation through Jesus. We pray this so that he will be honoured and glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.